0: I'll ask the rest of you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 17. We're just a couple of weeks away from beginning our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, but just having finished our Easter celebration and looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and knowing that the Sermon on the Mount is what's coming, I wanted to Share with you this morning something from the teachings of Christ, and and uh, the Lord just impressed upon me this this passage. Um, it's interesting. This is a um, a passage. the The only other time I've preached from this passage was different than the one that I preached before I went to seminary and had those opportunities. But uh, the title of this morning's message is Overcoming Entitlement Christianity. And just as I read this this uh, passage of scripture and and was thinking about what we look at in our culture today and even in the church today, there is a problem with entitlement. Um, we typically think of it um, most often in, in terms of referring to the entitlement of the younger generation, those people that think that they just deserve everything, everything should be handed to them and they shouldn't have to earn anything, but they're just it's owed to them to have whatever they want. And and that's kind of how we think of entitlement. But the reality is entitlement is something that's been around since creation because it was a sense of entitlement that led Adam and Eve to rebel against God. The tempter came to Adam and Eve and said, basically, God's not giving you everything you deserve. You can have more. And you deserve more. And this is how you get it. And they went off and rebelled against God and because of pride, because of a sense that they have somehow deserved something more than what they had. And so the reality of entitlement is, is something that we do see culturally, and we see it especially in cultures that are prosperous. And the more prosperous the culture, the more people seem to have a sense of entitlement. The the generations that have gone before us have earned the prosperousness of where we are, and the younger people don't think they have to earn anything, and so we see that culturally. But at the root of entitlement is ultimately the issue of pride. And of course, while we all might not have the same sense of entitlement, we all do struggle with pride. So the issue this morning is when we look at God, to God's word is not whether or not there's something here for us as we seek to overcome an entitlement mentality or overcome the pride in our life. The question for us individually is whether or not we will hear what God has to say to us and apply it to our lives. The only question is that of obedience. You see, as Christ is teaching his disciples, at the end of chapter 16, he, he is this most, the one of the most, I think one of the best descriptions, rather, of, of the idea of this is our only chance for salvation. At the end of chapter 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And and Jesus gives the, he tells about how the rich man, or how Lazarus uh, sat at the rich, rich man's door begging for scraps while the dogs came and licked his sores. And it says both the rich man and Lazarus died. And the rich man was, was carried off to Hades, and the, the Lazarus was taken to heaven, essentially. He was taken to heaven, and, and Lazar, or, or the rich man cries out to, to Abraham in heaven, and he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to cool the, the burning of my tongue as I'm here in this torment. And Abraham says, it's no good. He can't, he can't go from here to you, and you can't come from there to us. There's a great gulf between us that no one can cross. And he says, well, send him then to my brothers. I have five brothers who are still alive so that they don't come to this terrible place. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And he says, yes, but if someone were to come to them from the dead, they would listen. And Abraham says, if they're not going to listen to the word of God, they're not going to listen to someone even if they rise from the dead. There is an, an obstacle to faith which is in unbelief. People that don't want to believe, people that are opposed to the very premises of Scripture, are not going to be convinced by simple arguments. They're not going to be convinced by even experience. You think about the life of Jesus as he walked this through the world, right? And he's performing miracles. And those that opposed him, right, the religious right, the the Pharisees and the, and the, the powers in the religious order of the Jews of that day they opposed Christ right why well because he taught things they didn't agree with he threatened the power and authority that they had they didn't try to deny the miracles that he performed they couldn't they knew he performed miracles in fact they feared the people because he performed miracles and the people were following after him and then what happens when when Jesus is raised from the dead do the Pharisees believe in him because he's raised from the dead? No, they try to cover it up. They say, well, we can't have people, we can't let this word get out. We gotta make an excuse for to try and explain away the resurrection. Right. So it's not, so even though someone was raised from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. Why? Because of pride. Because pride is the opposite of faith. Pride keeps us from following Christ. Pride keeps keeps us from being all that the Lord desires for us to be, both individually and corporately as His church. Pride, entitlement, finds its way into the body of Christ. Because we have a tendency in our humanness to think that we know better than everybody else. We have a tendency to think well, if they would just do it this way, things would be better. We have a tendency to think, well, if I if I could just if I could just have it my way that this would be better than the way that it's going on. And the problem is is that none of us have all the answers. Okay? The second problem is not all of us are called to the same positions of authority and within the body of Christ in order to say how things are done. Right? We all have input, but we're not all called to the same position. We're not all given the same responsibility. It's really easy to say how things would be, should be done when it's not your responsibility to make sure it gets done, right? How often do we criticize the way the government does things because we don't like the way things are done and we think, well, if they just did it this way, but, you know, we don't have the responsibility or the authority to carry out, so it really doesn't matter, does it? But when it, the, th- the thing is, is when it becomes your responsibility, your perspective changes because all of a sudden you recognize your weakness to actually affect change in so many ways you sometimes you see clearly the way that you ought to go but there's the obstacles that are in the way that you don't see otherwise but we all have that tendency to want things our way and the the reality is is when we consider the church that the church will never be this side of heaven exactly the way we want it to be why because everybody wants something a little bit different right but it's not going to be the way we want it to be people will let us down they will disappoint us we will be hurt and discouraged and largely we're hurt and discouraged in those circumstances because of our own pride because things aren't going our way but we cannot let pride keep us from doing all that we can to serve the Lord in his church and in engaging others with the gospel and that's this issue of pride that Jesus addresses on the heels of this teaching about unbelief and and the need for salvation On the heels of that, Jesus attacks the pride of the disciples as he gets into Luke chapter 17. Would you stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's inerrant and sufficient word? Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words given to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would take these words and apply them to our life, that we might recognize our position before you. We are your slaves. Bought with a price, the blood of Christ, purchased for the purpose of serving and glorifying your great and holy name. May you teach us, Lord, to overcome pride, that we might be more effective in our service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now the thrust of this text comes to us there in verse 10. This is really... The point that we're driving to, because this is the point that Jesus was driving to, where he says, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. I mean, you can see in that declaration the need for humility, because who of us ever simply arrives at that place on our own accord? We don't do we? We, we, don't, we don't typically like to think ourself, of ourselves as slaves. We don't like to think of ourselves as being unworthy slaves at that. But the reality is, is nothing that we've, nothing that we have we deserve. But all that we have comes as a gift from God to us. It is by His grace that we are given these things. So this message that Jesus preaches to the disciples is a message for every believer, as a message for you and for me, to recognize the need to, to see our weaknesses and to overcome pride in order that Christ might be exalted through us. There's three descriptions given in this text that I want to share with you this morning about overcoming the purpose of faith and the practice exercised, because humility is the key. First of all, we see humility, needs, that our example has in the life of others. And how our example can either be an obstacle to faith, or it can be an opportunity for faith. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2 again. he He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. That's an obstacle to faith, right? He's talking about stumbling blocks are an obstacle to faith. Right? Our example, if we're not living for Christ, if we're not doing the things that Christ has called us to do, if we're not walking in obedience to him, right, we can be a stumbling block to somebody either obtaining faith or growing in faith. Either one is a stumbling block. If we're keeping others from coming to faith in Christ, we're a stumbling block. If we're preventing others from growing in Christ, we're a stumbling block. And Jesus says, listen, stumbling blocks are going to come. They're in the world, Right? There are, there are things that are going to happen not everyone is going to believe. There are things that are going to stand in the way of people coming to faith and people are not going to always recognize, excuse me, they're not going to always recognize their need for salvation. Stumbling blocks must come. That word stumbling blocks in the Greek is the Greek word scandalon. What does that sound like? Scandal, right? It's a, scand- it's a scandalous thing to stand in the way of somebody's faith. It's a scandalous thing to prevent somebody from coming to Christ. It's a scandalous thing to keep somebody from growing in Christ. And this is what Jesus says. He says it is inevitable that they come. But listen, it doesn't have to come through us, right? (laughs) Jesus says they're going to come. It's in the world. It's going to happen. But let it not be us that's dropping those stumbling blocks along the way. let let it not be us who's doing that. He says, it would be better for you to die a horrible, painful death than it would be to cause someone to stumble. That is to keep them from faith or to keep them from growing in faith. In particular, he says, one of these little ones. Now in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus gives a similar teaching. He actually has a child in front of him, and he's teaching the disciples about that. And this In Luke's gospel, we don't see that, that imagery there, and so it, this could be a different time. Jesus taught something similar, And but by little ones, Jesus, if the child is intended, he's speaking of the innocence of the child before they're able to recognize right and wrong, while they're still impressionable, while they're still able to, to understand, or while they're still... Um, Forming their understanding of what right and wrong is and who God is and those things. And certainly, we don't want to stand in the way of a child coming to faith. But it also, many times in Scripture, this idea of little ones is those who are young in faith. Those who have, who have just come to the end of themselves and they've come to faith in Christ. And yet, we, don't, we also don't want to let them stumble. We don't want to let them struggle. We want to help them and come alongside of them and encourage them in their walk. With Christ. Excuse me. It's a, it's, so the, because the world is full of alternatives to genuine Christian faith. I mean, if you think about it, now a lot of times when we think about alternatives to Christian faith, we think about all the things that stand in opposition to Christianity. We think of, of those things, um, other religions or non-religion. We think of, you know, atheism. We think of uh, all of the all of the other isms that are out there that oppose us, and you think about Islam, and you think about um, Mormonism, as opposed to the truth of the gospel. You think about some of these other isms that that come out there and we and that's typically what we think of when we think of those who are opposed and those stumbling blocks that are keeping people from faith but the reality is is there's a whole lot of stumbling blocks within the church itself within christianity as people who call themselves christian undermine the sufficiency of god's word they undermine the need for faith they undermine the need for grace we know that in the history of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention, going back uh, 30 years, 40 years or so, we had, we had the battle for the Bible, right? Because the sufficiency of Scripture was being attacked. And ultimately, we like to say in the Southern Baptist Convention that we won the battle for the Bible, that the Bible, which at one time was being seen as, as insufficient um, for our faith, is not necessary. The... the Miracles have been called into question, and our denomination was slipping away from being a people that stand on God's word, but we have regained that as a denomination, and yet those same arguments still infiltrate the church. We say we've won the battle. We haven't won. It's ongoing. So I was uh, talking with Ian, um, actually this morning, but last week too. And there is um, ongoing discussion on, online on, on some of these forums and stuff. And, and there's people that are, that are getting on there and they're accusing, they're accusing believers. Listen, they're accusing believers who uphold this as the word of God, the all-sufficient word of God for what we need for faith and practice. They accuse us of worshiping the Bible as opposed to worshiping Christ. Listen. Apart from this, you don't know Christ. Apart from this, you can't follow Christ. Listen, we don't don't worship the the pages in a leather-bound book. We worship the God who spoke them into existence. But it is through them that we know Him. It is through them that we grow in Him. Apart from the Word of God, you can't know the Word of God, who is Christ. And not only can you not know him, and one of the, the discussion we had this morning was this one person was saying, well, the Bible is just meant to point us to Jesus, but once you get there, you don't, know, you don't need the Bible anymore. Well, how is that even possible? How can I grow in my knowledge of Christ apart from God's Word? Just because I get to Him doesn't mean I know all I need to know about Him. Just because I get to Him doesn't mean I can be obedient to Him because I don't know all the things that He taught. How do I know those things? From the Word of God. And so there is oppositions and obstacles even within the Christian church that we need to overcome. There is The blasphemy within the church scares me more than any outright opposition outside the church. You know what Jesus said? Jesus says man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we know what proceeds from the mouth of God? It's given to us right here. The Bible has recorded God's word for us. When we step outside the parameters of Holy Scripture, we've elevated ourselves to be the interpreters and dispensers of truth rather than God. We've lifted our Whether our error is outright denial of God, Christ, and His Word or it is more subtle in undermining that authority, God will hold us accountable. These are scandalous things that take place, but we don't have to contribute. In fact, we're given the warning in verse 3, be on your guard. Don't be an obstacle to somebody's faith, but rather let your example be an opportunity for faith. Look here in verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, what kind of example is that? That is, that is the instruction of faith and the encouragement of faith. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's instruction. The word rebuke, it means to, it means to make an evaluation of the scenario. That's the word, what the word rebuke means. It means to make an evaluation and then to share it with them. You see that what they're doing is wrong. Well, how do you know what they're doing is wrong? Because God's Word says so. Not just because I'm offended by it, not just because I don't like it, but because God's Word says you shouldn't be doing that, so I'm going to go to you, not in some sort of self-righteousness to try and, and beat you down and make you feel bad, but out of love and concern for your relationship with Christ and for love and concern for your walk with Him so that So that you can understand that what you're doing is offending him and it's hurting others, and you need to repent before God and seek His forgiveness in order that you might know Him and walk with Him. And so we go to them in love as an opportunity to rebuke them, and then and then to when they repent to forgive them. We need to be forgiving. A rebuke doesn't always lead to the desired response of repentance, but when it does, we are called to forgive. Not just once. Not just seven times in a day, which is the actual numbers we're given here. The idea is an unlimited number of times. As often as they are willing to repent, so we must also forgive. Forgiveness is hard say, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. Listen, nothing that anybody has ever done to you is worse than what you have done to God. We forgive because Christ forgave us. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 reminds us, love keeps no record of wrongs. We need to forgive because we're not to hold, we're not to hold on unforgiveness we're not to be let a root of bitterness take hold in our heart but we forgive because christ forgave and forgiveness isn't about whether or not someone deserves it it's about trusting christ to deal with it warren Wiersbe writes it takes living faith to obey these instructions and forgive others our obedience and forgiving others shows that we are trusting god to take care of the consequences, handle the possible misunderstandings, and work everything out for our good and his glory. Our obedience to Christ serves as an example for others to follow as we live out the word of God in their presence. Our example is so important. Whether our example serves as an obstacle to faith or an opportunity to faith, people are watching us because we profess Christ. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? See, our example is hugely important because we are, as followers of Christ, we are either helping believers grow in faith, leading other people to faith, or we are a standing testimony that their rebellion will lead to judgment. And the question that Paul asks at the end of that, who is adequate for these things? None of us are in and of ourselves. The apostles recognize that. In fact, as Jesus is teaching in this passage, look at what they say in verse number five. This is their response. He says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. They knew they weren't adequate for the things that Christ was calling them to do. They knew that they didn't have it in them. They knew that they needed something more than than what they had. This is the, the the purpose of our faith is to increase our faith. This is that the Disciples in this moment of teaching have recognized their need, their weakness, and have cried out for Christ to interfere, or to intercede, and to interfere with their lives. This is They, they found in this moment humility. They recognized the need, and they found it in their response. This ought to be the response of every believer. Every believer ought to be regularly praying before God, increase my faith. You know, I'm reminded of the um, account in, I think it's in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 9. A father brings his son to the disciples to be healed. And this son had been thrown into the water, thrown into the fire. And the disciples were not able to cast out the demon that was afflicting this child. And so they bring the child to Jesus, and, and the Father says to Jesus, he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible for the one who has faith, for the one who believes. And I love the Father's response in Mark 9, 24, the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is where we find the disciples. (laughs) They're in that same same circumstance. They recognize, I I have faith, but help me in the weakness of faith. I, I believe, Lord, but my unbelief is getting the best of me in this moment. I need you to strengthen me. This is the presence of humility. The purpose of our faith is to drive us to humility. To, to find that place in where we recognize our utter dependence on Christ. And then Jesus responds in, in verse 6. He responds to this declaration that the apostles make, increase our faith. And he says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, this is one of those passages in Scripture that is taken out of context and used by prosperity preachers in all the wrong ways, okay? Listen, this passage, first of all, let me ask you, how many recorded instances in history do we have of trees being uprooted and planted in the sea by men of faith? None, right? It didn't happen. Why? Because that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point that Jesus was saying so that we would have the the power to control nature and to do these things. The the point that Jesus was saying was, listen, if you follow me, if you pursue the things that I'm telling you to do, you can do anything that I've given you to do in the power that I'll give you to do it. Because that's what faith is. That's faith. Faith is saying, I trust God to do what he said he's going to do and to empower me to do what he's told me I need to do. And so... That's the point. I think, is there a literal side to what Jesus is saying? Well, I, I think, first of all, I think it is meant to be hyperbole. But at the same time, Jesus did some amazing things. I mean, he defied nature. And, I, and well, for that matter, Peter did too. In a moment of faith, Peter walked on water with Jesus. So there, there, is, there is a sense in which, in which faith completely dependent on God overcomes even the natural laws that we experience each and every day. Why don't we see that kind of faith doing those kind of things more often? Why? Because immediately, if we were to do those kind of things in which we were overcoming the power the laws of nature we would immediately think that we had done it and our eyes would come off of god and back onto ourselves and so there is a weakness within us that keeps us from accomplishing those types of things you think about the some of the men of great faith in scripture and i'm sorry i'm trying to get to the main point here y'all but some of the great men think of the apostle paul now first of all apostle paul's great testimony here's a guy who was an obstacle to faith, right? But God says, you know what, I'm going to use him. And so God confronted him in his sinfulness and converted him and changed him and began to use him. And then here's Paul, probably one of the great examples of faith, wrote half of the New Testament, and he's, and he's going around the world and he's preaching the gospel and he's, and he's overcoming and he's healing people and he's raising them from the dead and he's doing all these things. And, and, and yet, when it came to his own ailments, It wasn't about having enough faith. Paul prayed to God that the thorn in the flesh might be removed and he prayed three times and God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. You're just going to have to endure it. So it's not always a matter of faith. Now we all need faith, right? We need faith to endure. We don't necessarily need faith to change our circumstances. What faith does is faith puts our will in line with God's will so that we can submit to His purposes for us. That's the instruction of faith, the purpose of faith, to lead us to humility and to accomplish in us a practice of faith. And I want to share with you really the... the driving thrust behind this text, and that is the practice of a believer, or we could say humility exercised. You see, humility is needed, and it is found in the recognition of our weakness and prayers for faith, but it must be exercised. And in verses 7 through 10, Jesus gives, and this is, you know, you could look at this, and in verses 7 through 10, they seem to stand by by themselves, as Jesus gives us instruction about about this slave and, and the example that he's going through and what he's trying to teach the disciples. The problem with is in, in separating that is there's no separation in the text of his teaching. He, he moves immediately from teaching them about faith to actually from teaching them uh, about stumbling blocks and, and, and then teaching them about faith to teaching them about this slave and the... Application that he's making. And so really, verses 7 through 10 are the application of the things that he's been telling them. First of all, he's telling them, you need humility. You, you found it in the recognizing your weakness, but now you need to practice it. He says, Imagine, he says, which of you, having a slave, ploughing or tending a sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. And so he pr- proposes to them this scenario. If any of you has a slave, wouldn't this be the reality? They've done all the work all day long. They have brunt the labor of the day, and they come in. You're not going to say to them, go and clothe, you know, clothe yourself and eat and drink and, and rest. No. I mean, they're the slave. They're the ones serving you. You're going to say, look, I know you've worked all day, but you know what? Fix my food. And when you're done, then you can take care of yourself, and there'll be, be provision for you. Right? And so the first thing that Jesus is, is trying to demonstrate to us or try to show to us is, is that we need to recognize our own position. You see, he starts off with this idea of if any of you has a slave that does this, but how does he end it? You're the slave, right? He makes this, he sets up this example in, in verses seven through ten. He says, If he says, which of you having a slave? But then at the at the end you get to verse ten, he says, You need to say we are slaves. So he first gives them something they could identify with because it wasn't uncommon for, that, for most people to have at least one household slave. And, and, and it's not, we shouldn't think of slavery in the first century, uh, first century Judaism the same way that we think about it in American history because it wasn't, it wasn't the same. First of all, slaves were often not of a different race. They were all of the same people. They just happened to be poor people that couldn't support themselves so they would sell themselves into slavery so that they'd be taken care of. So the slave is somebody who is indebted to their master, somebody who's being taken care of and serving them for that purpose. And so we, we are compared to slaves. That is our position. And actually, it's interesting because throughout the New Testament, we're, we're given that example that we, as believers, are slaves of God. And, and the Apostle Paul re- refers to himself over and over again in the, in the introduction to his letters. He says, He says, uh, Paul the Apostle, slave of Christ. I mean, over and over and over again, he says that. And then in in the book of Romans, he tells us several times in the book of Romans that we ought to serve God as slaves of Christ. And so this idea of being slaves is something that is found first in the teachings of Jesus, that true humility recognizes our position before God, that we are his servants. And then it seeks to serve him in that capacity. So we have to recognize our position, first of all. And then we can rest, having recognized our position, we can rest in God's provision. Now, there in verse number 8, he says, Will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And then here it is, And afterward you may eat and drink. You see, even in this parable, as Jesus is speaking, he's telling them, When the slave is faithful to carry out his work, the master makes provision for him so that he's taken care of. Yes, we're slaves of God, but we can trust Him to care for us. We have a responsibility to serve Him, but in serving Him, we can be sure that He's going to meet our needs because that is what He's told us He's going to do. He's going to give us strength to endure. He's going to give us power to overcome. He's going to give us everything that we need in this life He has promised to give us. Sometimes, sometimes in life, things get really difficult. Sometimes in life, things become overwhelming. Sometimes in life, we face even death. But death is not the end for the believer. We continue on even after death. So our faith leads us to be faithful. Our faith leads us to serve him continuously, recognizing that he has provided for us. And then finally, we get into this, the last part, not only recognizing our position and resting in God's provision, but responding to our responsibility. And look with me down in verses 9 and 10. And Jesus asks the question, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which he were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Oh my goodness. How desperately we need to recognize the truth of this declaration. So many times we think that God owes us something. We think because we've done this or we've done that or we've accomplished that or we've done this, we think that God owes us. Listen, God doesn't owe us anything. Say that with me. Say, God owes me nothing. Nothing. Say it again. God owes me nothing. We don't deserve anything that we have. It's all of God's grace. He doesn't owe us anything. No matter how long we serve him, no matter how much we do for him, he doesn't owe us anything. Because he's already given us more than we could ever deserve. We are unworthy slaves. I like the New King James that says, unprofitable servants. The unprofitable servant. It's it's just that very thing. It's it's recognizing the reality that God doesn't owe us anything. In Scripture, we see the picture of the unprofitable uh, servant or the unworthy slave. In several other places, the the image of being unprofitable is used in Romans 3.12. It says, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. And the word unprofitable can also mean corrupt. In Matthew 25:30, it's written, "And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Well, that's not a very good description of being an unprofitable servant, being unregenerate and corrupt before. So why would we ever say such a thing? Well, because the reality is, is apart from God, that's exactly what we are. Without a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are unregenerate. we are corrupt. And so the the declaration of us being unprofitable servants is just a recognition that apart from him, we are nothing. Apart from him, we have nothing. That we need him. And because he has done so much for us, we have a responsibility to serve him. In verse 10 he says, so you two, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, first of all, recognize in verse 10 he says, when you do all the things or when you have done all the things which you're commanded to you're never done serving. Okay? You're never done serving Christ. Ever. Listen, ever. You, even when you get to the end of this life, you're going to serve him in eternity. But, listen, don't give up now. You've got eternity ahead of you. Don't get out of practice. We have a tendency to get to a certain point where we think, well, I've done enough, I've done my time, I've done my share, and I'm just going to wait it out. No! Listen, this life is preparation for eternity. We need to serve Christ now in all that we do so that he can be glorified through us. The New King James puts it this way. He says, we have done what was our duty to do. We have a responsibility to obey Christ as his slaves, as his servants. There is no room in the life of a Christian for an entitlement mentality. Yes, Christ has done all the work, but we don't deserve the fruit of his labor. He gives it to us freely. And everything where you put yourself, your needs, your desires as your priority, you have denied Christ, and pride has taken control. We are slaves of Christ with responsibilities to honor and glorify him, to spread his word to the world around us, and to help others grow in their service to him, because he is worthy. There's this misguided idea that has come up in Christian culture that because the price that was paid for our redemption was such a high price that we must be infinitely valuable. No. No. The high price that was paid was because our sin was so costly. Our sin costs so much. And we want to make it about us. We want to make it somehow that we are deserving of what he gave. No. We were in debt. Y'all know what it's like to be in debt? If you've ever been in debt, it's not a fun place to be. Scripture says the borrower is slave to the lender. It's no fun to be in debt. But if you've ever been in debt, if you've ever been in debt to the point where you think that you can't get out of it. That's where you were apart from Christ. You had a debt you couldn't pay. There was no way you were getting out of it. But he came and paid the price for you. He is the master and we are his This morning, as we reflect on these truths, I want you, first of all, just recognize your own weakness before God. Recognize where you failed and let pride to take over your heart and your mind. And in that recognition, just, just repent. Confess your sins, confess your weaknesses, confess your pride before Him, and then respond by faith to walk with Him. Having been cleansed from sin, having been made clean in his presence, we should no longer live for the desires of our flesh, but for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven. Thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. I thank you, Lord, for the example that you've given us. I thank you for the truth of your word that is as as sure to us today as when it was written. Father, we thank you for the love which you show us in your continued instruction for us. Help us, Lord, to recognize our weakness and to turn to you in repentance to trust in you to strengthen us and to walk with you in faithfulness in Jesus name we pray amen i ask you to stand with me jim's going to play for us now is the time to respond you can pray where you are you can come to the altar i'll be down front to pray with you if you'd like Just take a moment to reflect on your weakness, your failures, and just respond. i servants, but we come to Him as Father. His love is infinitely greater than we could ever deserve. But He gives us responsibility to follow, to serve, to make much of Him. I pray that as you go out today, that you would be convicted of your need for Him and all that you do. We're going to have we have a special called business meeting we're going to convene in just a few minutes but i want